Okay, well, let's dive into this afternoon. Um, one more thing about this morning and this afternoon's topic. I'm giving a bird's eye view of some things. I'm trying to touch on, this morning I wanted to get on a, a more, more of an overview of the significance of Adventism, the unique contribution to the gospel picture, the great controversy scheme, that kind of thing. And inevitably, when you try to cram that much into a small space, you can't really explain everything in the detail you'd like to. So it's a little bit of a challenge. This afternoon, I'm going to be doing something somewhat similar with the last days and last day events. I entitled this The Terrifying Tyranny of Adventist Eschatology. I mentioned to you that I am the father of two grown children, a daughter who is 18, a son who is 25, who have grown up in the church as a pastor's kid. And I can tell you that even growing up in a pastor's home, when you talk about the last days, there are just because it's not all in the home. You, you go to school, you go to Adventist boarding school, and you go to this and that, and you're talking to your friends, and you hear this here, and you hear that there, and the ideas that circulate about the last days. In fact, I had a young man in the Lansing area who is working with the Lansing Church currently as a Bible worker who is a theology student. A theology student. He's 21, I think. 20? And he brought up some questions to me that I'm going to touch on this afternoon that come up when we talk about the last days and the judgment. And specifically, his question was about the judgment of the living. And when he brought it up to me, I thought, are you seriously asking this question? Like, is this what people think? Well, let me just tell you what it is. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you're like, I've heard that same thing. There's a quote that Ellen White makes that, that people base this on, but there's this concept because Ellen White talks about the judgment of the dead and the judgment of the living. And so there's a concept out there that, that because Ellen White says we don't know how soon we're going to switch from the judgment of the dead to the judgment of the living. And so there's a concept that says perhaps. Because in the judgment, obviously, I'm being a little facetious, you're going through the books in alphabetical order. And so perhaps, Tamano, you're good because you're, you're after me because I'm an H and you're a T. And the mindset is, perhaps your name has come up in the judgment already. Because we don't know how soon. Maybe we're in the judgment of living and your name came up and maybe you just got judged out. And you don't even know it. Nothing you could do now would ever make a difference. You're lost. That's a real concern and thought that some people have and they think that somehow we taught that in Adventism. Maybe somebody taught that. We're going to talk about that. That's a little bit of a terrifying thought. So the terrifying tyranny of Adventist eschatology. Uh, before I go any further, I want to ask the Lord to bless our time as we study this afternoon. Bow your heads with me if you would. I'm going to kneel for this prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for your goodness to us all, for your love and your mercy in giving your son Jesus Christ to die, to sacrifice for our sins, and then to ascend as our high priest, our guarantee, our surety, the one we can put our full confidence in, because he who has begun a good work in us will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He is the author and finisher of our faith, he tells in your word. And we thank you for that. Now, Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to give us understanding in spiritual things this afternoon. And Lord, work through my thoughts and words and that they may be uh, uh, concise enough to give clarity and hope and inspiration to those who have come this afternoon and those who are watching online and those who are listening later through Audioverse and other platforms. We just thank you for hearing and answering our prayer, Lord, for we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I have to tell you again, I mentioned it this morning, for those who, well, whether we hear or not hear, I'll reiterate, that I, my mom and dad were first-generation Seventh-day Adventists, and so I grew up from, probably from my, my, I don't know if they came in, I think they came in right before I was born, actually. So I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Um, my mom and dad ended up getting divorced and both remarried. I lived with my mom, and my mom and my stepdad left the Seventh-day Adventist church in my teen years. So I grew up going to Adventist elementary school, and about the time I graduated from eighth grade and was getting set to go to the academy, then we, my mom left the church, and we moved to a different location, and I started going to public school and then was out of the church for many, many years. And I remember, of course, when you grow up Adventist, at least in those days, and probably any days, because part of Adventism is prophecy and last days and Jesus coming and the signs of the times, 
there would be those periodic conversations I would have with my oldest brother. Now, my oldest brother went to the academy, and um, we, would, we would go out on the weekends and hang out a lot. And then I remember many nights where we'd come home, and then we'd sit out in the car, and we would talk until the wee hours about the last days. And you'd have these colorful, like, what's it going to be? And it was almost like, you know, uh, guerrilla warfare or something, you know. And, you, you know, how is it going to be in the last days? And they're going to try to persecute us. And they're trying to force us to do this. We're going to, how, how are we going to stand firm? And sh I sure hope I make it through the time of trouble and don't get lost during the time of trouble, which is a common thing, evidently, I've heard from some Seventh-day Adventists. At the time of trouble, the big thing about the time of trouble, it's going to be so bad. What if... I'm faithful all the way through, and then I come to that point, and then for some reason I do something stupid during the time of trouble. Which is really ironic, because that was a conversation I had in a thought process I had had many times before I studied for myself. And one thing I learned very early studying for myself was that the time of trouble comes after the close of probation. You know what that means? Every case is decided when probation closes. So if somebody was going to lose their experience and be lost, it's not going to be during the time of trouble. That would have had to happen before. But we'll talk about that a little bit. But this is how it was. I remember growing up and having these late night, you know, kind of um, almost Hollywood-like pictures of the last days, what they would be like. But those were you know, every six months maybe, or, or, or further apart, we'd have these. So it lingered in my mind as a young man, but I really didn't concern myself too much with spiritual things until I started coming back to church. Now, one of the things that, that as I, as I um, went through some significant changes in my life and began to seek something spiritual, those concerns about the last days revived. Now, I always had a curiosity about the last days, what it's really going to be like, prophecy and that kind of thing. And here's an ironic thing. I told you this morning I went to a church that was really down on traditional Adventist doctrine, that was really down on Ellen White. In fact, I remember the elder of the church. I visited with the elder, church, elder of the church at some point in my early experience. And I asked him, I said, do you believe that Ellen White was inspired? And I'll never forget to this day, he looked at me and he said, he paused and he said, I believe she was a plagiarist. And then he said, and then he said the next sentence, I believe she was inspired. And, and I, I could never piece that together, an inspired plagiarist. Now that's a, that's, a, that's a new one. I was a new Christian, but my point is that gives you a little bit of an idea of where the leaders in the church that I started going to felt about Ellen White and her ministry. I didn't touch much on Ellen White this morning. It would have taken too long. I've done an entire series. You can get it on Audioverse on my experience with Ellen White because remember my family left the church during the Ford crisis and one of the big challenges with, here's the thing, you've got to understand the, pro, the thought process here. I told you Desmond Ford had a problem because he thought the sanctuary teaching robbed people of assurance. And he wanted to get rid of that. He thought we would be more popular as a church and more accessible to people if we could just get rid of the sanctuary. The problem is you can't really get rid of the sanctuary when you regard somebody as a prophet of God who says that this is a God-given doctrine. And so if you've got to get rid of the sanctuary, you've got to get rid of Ellen White. And so during the Ford crisis, there was a lot of attacks on Ellen White. One specific one that was prominent was a man by the name of Walter Ray. He was an Adventist pastor who wrote a book called The White Lie. And Oh, more stuff, you know, of course, throughout the years, and you've probably seen stuff on the internet by this time. Anyway, so I, I started out just being like, you know, my family left during that. So when I came back to the Adventist church, I wasn't like, oh, yay, Ellen White. I just wasn't really into Ellen White. Didn't have an interest in that. Kind of shared that. I mean, who wants a, who, who wants a person who basically uh, spells out different areas of your life that need reform anyway? And the reality is that's the challenge a lot of people have had with Ellen White, not ex not really grasping that it was like with every prophet of the Bible, it was just God trying to point something out through a weak messenger, as he does. But I had a curiosity, and that curiosity was prophecy. Last day events, what would happen? And one of the dear saints in the church came up to me and she said, I've got this book that you would just love. Because there's a woman, Ellen White, and Ellen White, and, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. 
And she had visions of what was going to happen in the last days and what it would be like. Oh, and that piqued my curiosity. And the book was, no, not the great controversy. It was the little book, Early Writings. Oh, what a treasure. And I started reading that book with my skeptical mindset, but with that curiosity, like, I want to know. And it didn't take me long getting into that book that I knew there was something different about that author, somebody behind that writing. And it really began to uh, um, not only gratify my curiosity, which in and of itself is not a bad thing, but fill in a lot of the gaps, things that I did not understand. Anyway, I went from that position of being, you know, uh, anti-Ellen White. That kind of opened me up a little bit. And so throughout my journey, of course, after that, I really, as I was studying out my faith, I really wanted to know from a biblical basis why Seventh-day Adventists, but don't tell me we believe the Bible. And oh, also, by the way, Ellen White, why do we believe in that from the Bible? I've got a whole series on that, which I'm not taking time to go into now, but if you have questions about it, I'd recommend you check it out. Uh, that was my journey uh, that the Lord led me through for a scriptural basis, and it's, to me, it's, it's just solid, the position we have and take on not just Ellen White, but just the gift of prophecy in general. So as we move forward, as I move forward in my experience, of course, I'm here talking about last day events. I went from some of those more skeptical ideas or fearful ideas to getting a little bit more of a, an understanding. Of course, it takes time and study, which I'm trying to abbreviate for you in sharing what I'm sharing. And I'd like you to go to Matthew chapter 24. Now, of course, where we stand today from a perspective of last day events and signs of the times, I remember what I say, 1994, and I came into the church a little bit before that. So that's a, that's a little spell ago. <laughs> and I remember in those days thinking, man, Jesus could come at any time, but there was nothing like what's happening today going on. I mean to tell you, if there, I can't tell you how many times I've preached a series of meetings, and when we get to the point of the United States and prophecy, and we actually propose the idea that this country of religious freedom, of religious liberty, is actually going to go back on the principles of its constitution, of its Bill of Rights, and enforce religious laws. I mean, people were like, okay, forget it. Now I know the guy's wrong. You know, when I was doing this 20 years ago, I don't know how anybody in their right mind today could question how this country could turn to a point to make and enforce religious laws. When we see anything goes at the whim of uh, Washington and the political tension between the two parties and misinformation. You know, Pastor Cameron, I may have mentioned this before, Pastor Cameron DeVeja, who I work with, he always makes this point, you know, when, when it comes to watching the news, drives me crazy watching the news. And, and he makes this point. If you don't watch the news, you're uninformed. So go ahead and watch the news and then you're misinformed. I want to be informed. And it's so hard in this day and age with all the political... So anyway, all of this stuff is, is kind of seeing, helping us to see the groundwork being laid. But then you have the wars and rumors of wars, as the Lord spoke about. You have the pestilences, which we've had pestilences. And I remember speaking in evangelistic meetings like pestilences. You know, these are strange diseases. And we go through some of the new diseases that have come about, AIDS that have come about, and bird flu, and some of these new, nothing like covid Nothing like a pandemic, right? And so now you go to Matthew 24. I don't know how anybody can't see that. Wow, we're just like, this stuff is, is shouting at us. And in light of that, as I said, especially with my young children, then there's this, you know, you're, this Pastor Richard O'Phil, I keep referring to the late Richard O'Phil, uh, was a good friend and mentor and uh, uh, very insightful Pastor, the pastor Phil used to say, you know, he said, comment on Adventists, how Seventh-day Adventists, how we get all excited at disaster. <laughs> there's a big disaster, you know, a big, there's a tsunami and 20,000 people died, 100,000 people died. Amen, the Lord's coming soon, you know, kind of thing. Like, we, it's like, hold on a minute, people died. And, but there's this, you know, for some Adventists, we get geeked up about these events. Jesus is coming, now I see. 
But there are others, multitudes of others, a lot of them young people that are like, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, that's a little bit under, no, wait a minute, I'm, I want to get out and, and, and live a little bit. I'm not even out of school yet. Some of you aren't even out of school yet. Like, I've spent my entire life on this planet in school. Let me just get out and have a little bit of time out of school. And there are other things that people conjure up. And then there are just, you know, those, those questions. Besides, I just want to, you know, at least try my hand at life a little bit. There are those questions like, am I going to make it through the last days? All of this stuff comes about when you start talking about these last day events. Well, I can't tell you the last day events aren't last day events. <laughs> and they aren't there as evidences. But let's look at something in Matthew. Now, I just recently did a training session in Lansing at our conference office, a witnessing training that we do through Emmanuel. And I had, this is right at the time where the, the in fact, I think it was just like a week before the Russia-Ukraine thing happened you know, started, the war started. And I had one of the students just petrified, grown man, just petrified about this. Just, he would get, he'd come up, I remember him come up, coming up in class, he's like, you gotta speak about this, tell us about this, I mean, what's gonna happen? And he just short of breath and like, just had anxiety about the whole thing. And I took him to Matthew 24, and I want you to see the words of Jesus here, words that we are probably familiar with. It says in Matthew 24, verse, let's start verse four, and Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Notice his very next words here. Do not miss this. Because we're living here in wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. Now, listen, if I'm going to be Christian and I'm going to cite last day events, I've got to include all the last day counsel. <laughs> and the same Jesus said, you're going to see these things. See that you're not troubled, he said. For all these things must come to pass. But what? The end is not yet. Now, if you go on in the passage, he talks in verse 8 about how all these things are the beginning of sorrow. Newer translations say birth pangs. That's what the original means. Birth pangs, as you've probably heard this illustration before, start further apart. Contractions for a pregnant woman are further apart, and they get closer and closer together. They start with less intensity and increase in intensity. So birth pains increase as time progresses in frequency and in intensity, right? So Jesus, when he points to the wars, when he points to the famines, when he points to all these other things, the pestilences, what he tells us when he says these are like birth pains, he said, you're going to see these things increasing in frequency and intensity. The end isn't yet. I'm just telling you that when you see these things, it gives you a scope of where we're heading. Okay, That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. And we should take heed to that. But there's something a lot of Seventh-day Adventists miss, and that's Matthew 25 that comes right after 24. Now, I'm not going to read Matthew 25, but I'm going to tell you that Matthew 24 talks about the signs in the world. Matthew 25 talks about the signs in the church. The parable of the ten virgins, right? Five were foolish and five were wise and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So understand this, and I want to make this plain. In fact, I'm going to tell you in the words of one of our pioneers, Alonzo T. Jones. A.T. Jones was preaching to the General Conference Assembled. I believe it was in 1903 when he made this statement. He said that he was talking about the preaching. In this case, he was talking about the preaching of the gospel and the end of Christ, you know, the end of time, and how Christ said, you know, this gospel will be preached in all the world for a witness unto all the nations, and then the end will come. But Jones made this point. The goal of God is not just that the gospel message be preached. The goal is that the preaching of the message produces a people that will stand in the day of his coming. Thus, Revelation 14, the three angels' messages begin with the everlasting gospel. But what do they end with? Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You've got to have the here are they part. And if you don't have the here are they part, A.T. Jones said, we could preach that gospel for 10,000 more years and the Lord's not going to come. We're not going to camp out in lawn chairs watching the end time events and just think that let's just watch the clock and it's going to tick down and he's going to come. The church is going to have to be ready. Now, 
when I say that, some people are like, no, I'll just make sure that I'll get ready when I'm just good and ready to get ready. And if I want extra time, because we know that the Lord has a way of filling the ranks if his people don't come into line. I'm saying all of this just to say the signs of the times that we see should be telling us that we need to be seeking the kind of relationship with Christ that only we can choose. Nobody else can choose. I can't choose for you. You can't choose for me. There are, in fact, God permits these things. Let me segue a little bit. Uh, for our talking points, I've mentioned this several times, this program that Cameron and I do where we go over the Sabbath school quarterly, we have to record ahead. And so we have just finished in the story of Joseph. What a f One of the most fascinating stories in the Bible. The story of Joseph being sold by his brothers, etc. And when you go through that whole experience, you know, at the end of it all, Joseph says to his brothers, don't worry, you guys didn't sell me into this. This wasn't your, your doing. This was God's doing. You remember him saying that? Which the whole thing is phenomenal. But here's what I want you to understand. Ellen White tells us that, that and you see this in the scripture, but you just, she just spells it out, that Jacob had been a little bit overindulgent to Joseph. And in doing so, had created traits of character that weren't directly Joseph's fault, but they were still there. God knew what he wanted to do with Joseph. He knew he wanted to put him in this position of prime minister of Egypt, but he knew that the only way now that he could do it was to work out those character defects, and the only path he could do that through is the path Joseph walked. Now, that's been true in every age. We could go through Bible hero after Bible hero. You look at the Bible hero that had an easy life. <laughs> Our greatest heroes in the Bible, we think about Queen Esther, oh yeah, slave in the, Daniel, slave in the, you know, taken and emasculated in the king's palace and whatever, and we could go down the list. And God allowed certain circumstances in their lives to shape their characters, to fit them for the place that he had for them. Now listen, I'm going to tell you, if God could get us there on a smooth and easy road, I believe he would do it. God wants to give us the easiest path possible. But one of the reasons that he allows things to come to a head like we see in our world is it's the only thing that shakes us out of our routines. There are some of you who have made changes in the last two years that you might never have made had events not come to the point that they've come to. It's an, it's an unfortunate result of carnal humanity. And so when we see the last day events, keep this in mind. When God allows you to pass through what you're passing through, it's not to destroy you, it's to save you. It's to save me and it's to save the whole planet Earth. These things we happen around, also it's giving us an opportunity and we're missing this big time in Seventh-day Adventist. A huge opportunity to minister to other people who never would have been open prior to now. And we don't put the pieces together. I know Seventh-day Adventists who pray, Lord, please. They pray for their kids. They pray for their neighbors. They pray for their family members. They cry, Lord, I'm trying to witness to them, and they're not listening to me. And just, Lord, whatever it takes, open the way. Did you hear what you just prayed? We're living in it. God allows these things to happen, and they've been prophesied in Scripture. So that when these things do grip the attention of people, followers of God like you and me can say, not only is there a God who loves you, he told about everything that would happen. And you can point it out to him just like Daniel did to Cyrus, which is a fascinating story that I don't have time to get into. So I shouldn't have started it. But it's God is working through these things, these events. And he's doing it to save you and to save the people you're praying for, and even the people you're not. <laughs> That's God's work. And so God, in part of this, is trying to bring his church into working order. Now, when we come to this concept of the time of judgment we're living in, we talked this morning about if there's anything unique to Seventh-day Adventism, it's the sanctuary. And the, and the sanctuary is simply the work Jesus is doing. We read as we finished this morning from Great Controversy 488, was it? The sanctuary is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of humanity. Like that 
that is where Jesus is. Like right as I'm standing here, I can tell you where Jesus is and what he's doing, which is amazing. Your Christian friends of other faiths can't do that. They don't know where he is. They don't know what he's doing. They don't know what's taking so long. We know the answer. We know it from Scripture. They could know it from Scripture. The reason for the type and anti-type, the reason for the book of Hebrews to connect the dots was to show us that Jesus is right now in the heavenly sanctuary guaranteeing you and me a place in heaven if we're just willing to yield our lives to him. So we talk about the judgment that's going on now. Now, I talked about it a little bit this morning, and we had to use that nasty old word perfection because the Bible uses it. Talk about how Jesus is working. To, and, and the Apostle Paul makes no bones about it. Um, I'll tell you without, I told you we had a little bit of discussion of this over lunch, and, and it's always, I, I don't think there's any way I can say it that's not going to create some questions. Because when you talk about, people say, what do you mean by that? But when you read the book of Hebrews, it's very clear what's meant by that. In fact, we read this morning in Hebrews 9.28, Jesus came, he was manifested to take away our sins, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's not a hard, put away sin. What does that mean? Have you had, anybody have children in this room? You ever tell your children, put away your toys? What do you mean by that? You pay, I've got toys all over the room. If, my, if I said make, told my, my son, put away your toys, and I came back, and there were ten toys, and there's two toys, am I going to think he put away his toys? I'm going to say, what about these two? Yes or no? <laughs> when the Bible says put away sin, Jesus isn't putting away most sin in your life. He's putting away all sin. So we get in these endless discussions, the Seventh-day Adventists, about what that, how that works, like what... Folks, I can't explain to you how it works, but I'll tell you something else. Neither did the uh, Bible writers explain how it works. John says in 1 John 3, um, it does not yet appear what we shall be. I don't know what it looks like, John says, but this I know. When he appears, we're going to be like him. How do I know that? Because we shall see him as he is. I'm not going to be able to see him as he is if I'm not like him. And then John goes on to say this. He who has this hope in himself, pure, he, uh, sorry, he who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. There is a pure work of purification that Jesus is doing now in the sanctuary to prepare this earth for his second coming. Now listen to me carefully. I'm going to ask you a question. Who did I say is doing the work now? You're not doing the work now. It's not your work to do. Your work is to have faith in Jesus. Now, just to be clear, and I don't want to be nebulous about this, because we always just have a relationship with Jesus, just trust in him. And all. Let's be clear about what that means. In the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, commenting on Abraham. Now, the Bible uses Abraham as an example of faith. I could go to the scripture for this just as easily. Ellen White says that Abraham unquestioning obedience is one of the strongest evidences of faith in all the scripture. What's the evidence of faith? Obedience. In other words, here's the thing. If I trust God and God tells me to do something and I tell him no, do I really trust him? And I'll tell you, as Seventh-day Adventists, we get through this. I don't want to, let's not layer it to Adventists. Let's go to Christianity as a whole. If I read things in the Bible, and there are some things that resonate with me, and I'm like, yeah, I can do that. But there are other things I'm like, I just don't know if that applies today. Now, one of the things that I mentioned that, that uh, in our lunch conversation that I've studied recently is, um, it's interesting in the story of Jacob, one of the lessons that comes out, and Sister White highlights this, is the sin of polygamy in Old Testament times, where they'd have multiple wives. And as Cameron and I were doing our talking points, one of the points we made is, you know, we read today, we say polygamy. You know, these things are in the Bible because God's trying to show us the course that is going to be a, ba a, ba a bad course, right? Not everything the, the Bible heroes did were good things. So we see the mistakes they made and the results, and we learn from them. The tendency is we'll say today, well, polygamy, yeah, that's wrong. I would never do that. But our society doesn't practice polygamy like they did in Bible times. 
Today we would call it promiscuity, having multiple partners before marriage. See, they just got married every time they had a partner in those days. But the net effect is the same. And I'm not going to take the time to get into all the detail of that, but just simply to say, I could go, I could say to myself, you know, I believe it's important that I don't lie and it's that I don't cheat and that I don't steal. But I don't know if living with somebody and somebody else and somebody else before I get married is a wrong thing. If God said it's a wrong thing, can I come away from that and disregard it and say I have faith? Let's be honest with ourselves. Faith obeys God's word. Faith says, I trust him. He said this, I can't totally figure it out, but he said it and so I believe it. That's faith. And if a person has faith in Jesus, Jesus will take care of all the little details and the big ones. <laughs> so what he's doing in preparing his people for his, that's his work. What we need to do is to trust him and to cooperate with him in that work that he's doing. Now the judgment and the concept of judgment should inspire all kinds of Hope in Seventh-day Adventists. Go with me to the book of Daniel. And I, again, we, we don't have time to get into the depths of this, but just a few texts should suffice. Of course, we find that judgment picture in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, right there in the heart of the Bible, highlighting the rise of the Antichrist power. There's something there that we need to hang on to. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 7, verse 21. Daniel says, I was watching, and, at the same, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints. Who are the saints? Those are the ones who have accepted Christ as their Savior. Are you one of the saints? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Who's the judgment made in favor of? You. Who said it? God. That should give confidence. That should give hope, shouldn't it? It's as plain as day right there that God's working to get you into heaven, not keep you out of heaven. The judgment is about what Jesus is doing to save to the uttermost. That's one passage. That is, to me, just an exciting passage. I just cited another one we're not going to look at in Hebrews 7, which says he's able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. But let's go to Hebrews 12. This is one of my absolute favorite passages. That is speaking in the context of Christ's priestly work in the sanctuary that's going on right now. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the men and women of faith that have gone before us, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto who? The author and what? Man, aren't you glad it didn't stop with author? The author of our faith. Ah, oh, looking unto Jesus, the author of our faith. That means he started it, right? But boy, I sure hope it'll be finished. Well, guess what? The same one who authored it is going to finish it. Who wrote it? Is it Pastor Mark who preached it today? Yeah, kind of, because why? It's written in the word of God. God said it. That should inspire confidence in anybody who believes in the word and the promises of God. That God is not just the author, but the finisher. And the very context is talking about what Jesus is doing right now in the very specific work of perfecting the saints for heaven. I don't know all the ins and outs of how he does it, but I know he's going to finish it. Jesus doesn't leave things half done. And too often, saints, we go with how we feel about something. We say, well, I'm just not sure. In fact, I've asked people, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I did this thing and I just, oh, I need the forgiveness of the Lord. Well, have you asked the Lord for forgiveness? Yeah, I have. Well, are you forgiven? I'm not sure. Well, have you read 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Well, yeah. So is God a liar? Well, no. So are you forgiven? I mean, well, I don't, and this is what I'll get. Well, I just don't feel forgiven. How do you feel forgiven? What is feeling forgiven? Who defines that? And what does that even mean? God said it. If he said it, then it is a reality. And that's a faith experience. There's a reason the Bible differentiates between how we feel and our faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. But the Bible saying is our senses are not the reliable guide. God's word is a reliable guide. And when God makes a promise, God will keep his promise. He will finish what he started. Now, I was talking this morning and my dad said, you should have brought up. <laughs> so, dad, I'm going to bring this up. He loves this one statement. It is a great statement that uh, Ellen White makes in regard to the work of sanctification. Here I went and said that, and I'm looking here in my notes. Where did I put it? Oh, here it is. Faith and Works, page 50. Now listen to this. This goes along great with the work that Jesus is doing. It says, Ellen White tells us here, when it is in the heart to obey God, when efforts are put forth to this end, you want to do God's will, and you try to do God's will. Folks, that's all you can do in your strength. That's all I can do in my strength. When this happens, listen, Jesus accepts this disposition and effort as man's best service. And he makes up the deficiency with his own divine merit. <laughs> that, that's... The Lord's not like, oh, sorry, you know, on a scale like those Olympic things. It's like, yeah, that was about a three. I can only weigh in and give you my righteousness if you give me a four. That's not how it works. You, you respond with whatever you have, and God accepts that. That attitude, disposition, and effort as man's best service. And he makes up the deficiency with his own divine merit. What a powerful promise. One more I want you to look at with me before I shift gears a little bit, and that's also in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. The wording of this, and I'm reading in the New King James, so it may word different in other translations, but I want you to notice how, it's, how it reads here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, the King James says those who are sanctified, but the tense, the verb tense in the original is a continual. It's a present tense being sanctified. <clears throat> Here's what's interesting. The Bible says he has perfected forever. That's past tense, as it is in the original. So he's perfected forever. That's done, past tense. Those who are in the process of sanctification. When we think about sanctification, we think, well, that's an ongoing work, and it's not done yet, and I sure hope, and, and until it's done, I can't have confidence. That's not true, because the present work is based on the finished work of Christ in his own person. You see, Jesus took humanity, and in humanity wove a robe of righteousness, perfected human character in the human nature he took. It's a done deal. His work now is to weave that into humanity. So I had somebody ask me this morning, after the sermon, what's taken him so long? Right? Why 1844 and we're still here and what's taken him so long? This is what's taken him so long. Jesus just can't wrestle you to the ground and put the robe on you and tie it on tight. You've got to choose it. And that robe represents character, and character is formed by choice after choice after choice. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a whiz-bang thing. You've heard me speak on it before. That's the parable of the ten virgins. The reason that the wise couldn't share the oil with the foolish is because it represented character. And you can't give character to somebody else. Character has to be developed by your own personal choices. It's a, that's how it works. And so as much as Jesus has perfected character for all humanity in himself, and he gives that to you and me when we choose him. We have to choose him. And we choose him in the little things of life. We choose him in, this is why when we talk about Adventist lifestyle, why are we so particular as Adventists? Why do we, why do we nitpick every little thing? Because they're not little things. Because the choices we make are making up our character. 
again from the story of Joseph that I was just going through, page 252 in Patriarchs and Prophets, it tells us this. There are few who realize the influence of little things of life upon the development of character. Nothing with which we have to do is really small. The varied circumstances that we meet day by day are designed to test our faithfulness and to qualify us for greater trusts. We were talking at lunch about that story of Joseph, how fascinating it is that, and, and I, maybe I just mentioned this, that, that God, in order to put Joseph in that place, in order to put us in the place he wants to put us, may take us through these situations. By adherence to principle in the transactions of ordinary life, the mind becomes accustomed to hold the claims of duty above those of pleasure and inclination. What a powerful thought. Duty above pleasure and inclination. Inclination is what I feel more comfortable doing, what I'd like to do. And we all know as Christians those times when the Lord prompts us to do something, it's like, oh, I really don't want to go, you know, visit that sixth person today, but it's the best thing to do. And we make a choice. And the Lord teaches us to make choices that build a character that is more selfless in harmony with the character of Christ. But that takes time. That takes time, and that's the time we're in. And the Lord allows what he does so he can complete that work. But saints, he will complete that work. We just need to follow him in it and trust him in it. And he has perfected by forever by one sacrifice those who are being sanctified, who are going through this process. So when it comes to the, the, some of these issues of life, whether it be health habits or other things, they're all little pieces in that building of character. And sometimes we don't fully understand why the need for it. And there are times we just have to, listen, when I was converted and I, when I gave up drinking caffeine, I drank alcohol, I drank caffeine, obviously I was secular, I was in the world, and I remember reading that that was something I shouldn't do. And I did a crazy thing. I believed what it said. And that meant I had to make a choice. And so I made a choice 25 years ago. And by the grace of God, I kept that choice. Now I know people who have made choices in different things, and I've made choices in some things, and then you backslide into things. But this is a growing journey with Jesus. And my point is, you've got to continue growing. You've got to these choices are developing character. When it comes to the end, it's character that determines where we end up. And so the things, these events of the last days are God's way of awakening us to spiritual things, getting us less absorbed in the things around us, refocused on our relationship with the Lord. I told you that the, the idea of judgment should inspire confidence but there are some crazy ideas that we've allowed to creep into our faith i don't know where they came i've heard this since i've been in the church this idea of living ellen White makes a statement about living without a mediator this is a huge one to me Adventist probation the closer probation how many of you have ever heard that the closer probation is going to going to be earlier for seventh day Adventists than for other faiths or other people you ever hear that before okay a number of you've heard that before i spoke this recently and i had somebody and leadership come up to me and say, yeah, but isn't this true? And I just want you to understand something about this scenario. I'm going to read a statement from Great Controversy, and then I want to just flesh this out, what it's saying, okay, so that we understand what's being communicated. This is what it says in Great Controversy 520, I'm sorry, 425. Those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. You ever hear that before? Now, this is how this is interpreted, this statement. There's going to come a time when God's going to step out of the way and you're on your own. And it's going to be you and your own righteousness, and you better be righteous by that time because it's all you. Okay, now just hold on to this. That's, that's not true, by the way. <laughs> but that's how I can't tell you how many people interpret this statement. That's not what she's saying, and you'll, you'll get it in a minute. I'm going to read it again, actually, and read a little more context. Those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. That is true. 
Their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. Now, I've heard some crazy stuff on there. The grace of God and their own diligent effort. I thought it was just the grace of God. Don't be confused by this. God can't force you to be saved. And so when it says, and their own effort, it just means you have to choose it. That's all it's saying. It's not saying, well, God's going to do part of the work, but you've got to do part of the heavy lifting. That's not the point that's being made here. The simple point is, God is trying to save, but you've got to choose it because he's not going to force you. So by the grace of God, which is what does the work, and their own diligent effort, which is allowing the grace of God to work in the life, they'll be conquerors. They must be conquerors in the battle with evil. While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, so we've just backtracked, because when the intercession of Christ ends, so let me, let me pause and explain here. When we talk about the close of probation, the pro close of probation in Scripture is simply, the Bible says that we are living, the human race, Adam and Eve should have died as soon as they ate that fruit. God had said it, the only reason they didn't, and this is verified in Scripture and in the spirit of prophecy, is because Jesus stepped in the way and became the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He pledged himself when they li their lives should have been taken and said, I'll take the penalty. And therefore, humanity was given a probationary period while God worked this out. And in that probationary period, God would set forth the plan of redemption. When Jesus stops his work in the sanctuary, what is his work in the sanctuary? Intercessor, mediator. He's the one that is trying to draw us to God. Now keep in mind what we talked about earlier with atonement. You have God here, you have man here, you have sin in the middle, right? Jesus' work of intercessor is to bring the two together. Understand this clearly. There are going to be those at the end of time. And when you get to the last events, the Mark of the Beast issue, it's just designed to be a polarizing issue. You're not going to have three sides at the end. You're not going to have the middle option like the, you know, I'll take the third option. You're not going to have a third option. You're going to have, I choose Christ or I don't. The mark of the beast brings people to that decision. And then you're going to have two groups of people, those who've accepted Jesus as their savior. And when that has happened, Jesus will work out in them his robe of righteousness and bring them to a one with God. For the others, they're left to themselves because that's what they chose. And then Jesus lays off his priestly garments. His priestly work is done. There's nobody else coming to him for his priestly intercession. They didn't want it. The people who did want it came and they received it. And atonement has been made. And so man who was here and God who was here have been brought back together. At this time, Jesus finishes his work as priest. If there's no more priest in the sanctuary, where is a person going to get forgiveness? They're not. They're not. So probation has closed. So when we talk about the close of probation, we're simply saying Jesus finished his work as high priest. There's no more priest to mediate between man and God. And there's not going to be somebody knocking on the door like people on Noah's Ark at this point. They've made their decision. And, and time doesn't permit me to get into all the detail of that. Jesus has saved all who want to be saved. Now he leaves the sanctuary. There's no mediator. And those who have chosen Christ, well, the whole world is going to have to live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. That means without a priest in the sanctuary. Does that mean we're living on our own? If the work of the priest was to bring the two together, guess what? You're one with God now. You're not alone. You're with God. The point is that Jesus finished his work, and now there's nothing that needs mediated anymore. The atonement has been affected. You, Christ lives in you. So this idea of, oh, living in the sight of a holy God without a meteor means we're going to be living on our own is simply not at all biblical. You can't find it in the spirit of prophecy. It's a distortion that has given a lot of people an unsettledness. And the truth is so far from that. Folks, Jesus is going to be with us to the end. He's promised, I'll be with you always. This doesn't contradict that. If you've availed yourself of his atonement, you're brought to oneness with God, and you can't be separated from him ever again. And when probation closes, 
The case has been, cases are decided. There's nothing that can happen at that point to rob you of salvation. So, so living in the sight of a holy God without a mediator is a, is a solemn thought. And we can just praise the Lord that he has effected the atonement and that our cases have been decided and assured by Christ. Are you following that? And so sometimes you read that, and, and in fact, let me continue on here. So Ellen White backtracks, and she says, while the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin among God's people on the earth, right? So just before the close of probation, we still have a priest. Well, let's be cooperating with the priest in the work that he's doing for us during that time. That's what she's saying. When this work shall, oh, this work is more clearly presented in the messages of Revelation 14. You do a little study on the three angels' messages. You do a study on the phrase present truth, and you'll see this is the present truth, the work Jesus is doing now in the sanctuary, preparing to come again to this world. I go to prepare a place for you. That language is talking about this work he's doing. He's not just building houses in heaven. He's fitting people for heaven. And she says, when this work shall have been accomplished, the followers of Christ will be ready for his appearing. Jesus will finish what he started. Just trust him. Amen? It doesn't matter if you can work out all the, you know, calculus equation for how this thing works. <laughs> That's his work. But we've got to decide if we're going to surrender our lives to him and trust him and live for him. Amen? And then it's not about how I feel about it. God forbid my salvation were based on how I feel because saints, I'm a pastor. I've been in the work for years and I can preach sermons like this, but I have my up days and down days when it comes to how I feel. There are days I just feel God forsaken. But I have the promises of God and I know better because of those promises. I live by the promises of the word of God. My feelings, the devil manipulates feelings. And I'm not going to let him manipulate my faith in God that way. How about you? Now, there's another thing that comes in here that I want to, one more thing I want to touch on, and that is this concept, as I mentioned, of the judgment of the living. I'm going to read to you this statement in Great Controversy 490. And it tells us this, Solemn, solemn are the scenes connected with the closing work of atonement. Well, of course they're solemn, because it's, the final opportunity for humanity, right before probation closes. It's a solemn time. Momentous are the interests involved therein. The judgment is now passing in the sanctuary above. This was written in, well, the 1911 version of Great Controversy, but this was written a little bit prior to that. So it's been quite a bit of time that for many years the work has been in progress. And then she says these words, soon... None know how soon. It will pass to the cases of the living. In the awful presence of God, our lives are to come up in review. When the work of the investigative judgment closes, the destiny of all will have been decided for life or death. The solemn time. All that is simply saying, see the three angels' messages, there's an urgency to it. You know why? What did we just read in Hebrews? Set aside the sin which what? has a really hard time besetting us. No, it so easily besets us. I wish I could tell you that the tendency of humanity was always onward and upward. That the tendency was to be right on top of things and not to procrastinate and put things off. But for most of us, with the exception of maybe a handful in here, for most of us, myself included, we tend to put off the things that should be done today. And so... The three angels' messages come out, first angel with a loud voice, an arousing voice, a message that kind of wakes us up. That's the reason God's trying to get our attention with all these other things so that we don't miss the opportunity while there is the opportunity to yield all to Christ. It's a solemn time. Now, but this idea, soon, none know how soon, the judgment will pass to the living. I told you the construct that's put on that. People say, oh, that means that the names are coming up, this judgment's going on, 
And every day, cases are being decided. And a case, your case may have been decided, and then Jesus moved on. First of all, folks, that contradicts the whole idea I just talked about, the close of probation. As long as there's a priest in the sanctuary, you have opportunity. Okay? But the idea she's simply pointing out is this. We've been told that Jesus could have come shortly after 1844. But the church didn't come into working order. Now think about this just pragmatically for a minute. If Jesus is doing a judgment, and the judgment is the judgment of the dead, and it's going to move sometime to the judgment of the living, we don't know when, what would that have to mean to move? What is the, what is the causative factor to transition to the judgment of who it would call the living? <laughs> that can only happen when there's a generation ready for Jesus to come, i.e. the living at Jesus' coming. In other words, the reason the judgment of the living didn't happen 50 years ago or 100 years ago was there weren't enough living people to have faith in God for him to finish the work so it couldn't be the judgment of the living because they couldn't live to when Jesus came. The, the judgment of the living, the, the idea, the reason we don't know when that's going to be is the judgment of the living is equivalent with, parallel with, the generation that's going to stand in the day of Christ's coming, i.e. the living. And so this isn't a, an equation here where it's like, hey, some of us, your name might have come up. and super. She's just saying, that the judgment's going on and there's going to come a time when we've reached that last, that, that, that last phase of earth's history where Jesus now is ready to come. And the people now going through the judgment are not those who have gone to their graves. They're those who are going to be translated without seeing death, the living. But none know how soon that is because we don't know when this church is going to get its act together. As much as I could go on and talk about God knows the time and God can move... We still know. In fact, in the words of Ellen White, in the book of Evangelism, I can't give you a page number, she says, we may have to remain in this world many more years for our insubordination to God. That's failure to come under the command of a commanding officer, under the order of a. But she says, let us not add sin to sin by charging God with the, own, with the result of our own wrong course of action. In other words, we're not here because Jesus wasn't ready to come. We're here because we've been faithless and we've followed after the world and God has borne long with us. But the day is coming and is his hand when the judgment will move to the judgment of the living because Jesus will have reached a time when his people will finally be ready to finish the work he's given us to do. So this idea of the judgment of the living, this idea of the close of probation, this idea of the time of Jacob's trouble is not something that's supposed to inspire us with an uncertainty. You have a passage like Hebrews 12 that says Jesus is the author and finisher of your faith. You have a passage like Philippians 1.6 that says he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That ought to give all the confidence you and I need that Jesus is going to do what he said he's going to do. When we look at these last day events, we look about the, at, at the time of trouble. The fascinating time. There are interesting things connected with, and when I say time of trouble, when we talk about that, we're talking about the time of Jacob's trouble. And when you do a little study in the Bible at the time of Jacob's trouble, what was it for Jacob? It was a spiritual wrestling with God in which, you remember what happened to Jacob? Oh, what a fascinating... I want to do a whole sermon. I did a sermon on this a while ago at the Michigan camp meeting on this, this, this whole concept of Jacob's struggle because you see, as Jacob was wrestling with the angel, which was Christ, Ellen White says that the Lord himself was bringing Jacob's sins to his mind. Now you get this in the passage of Scripture. When the angel's wrestling with Jacob all night, and then day breaks, and the angel touches Jacob's hip, and immediately it's out of joint. Now, if you're in that wrestling match, how many of you have ever been in a wrestling match before? Right? And I don't, it doesn't have to be a professional wrestling match, you understand? If somebody can touch your hip and it's out of joint, what does that tell you? And you've been wrestling all night, what does that tell you? Listen carefully. They didn't really want to win. Right? If I can just touch your hip, why have I been wrestling with six hours? I could have just think and we're done. So the Lord did not want to defeat Jacob. He wanted to take Jacob through an experience. And at the very end of that, when he touches that hip, 
when Jacob realizes he's been wrestling with the Lord, he says, I won't let you go. He says, let me go for the day breaks. And, Lord, and Jacob says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And uh, time doesn't permit. Read the story. That was a lifetime of wrong decisions that had haunted Jacob. And you may have a lifetime of wrong decisions. You may have a loved one who has a lifetime of wrong decisions. Jesus wants to give you relief from that burden. Let me go, he said. And I won't let you go unless you bless me, Lord. You've got to bless me. I need that blessing. And so the Lord then says to him, tell me your name. That's one of the painful, most painful passages in the Bible because Jacob's name meant deceiver. And when the Lord says, tell me your name, he was calling for confession, as it were. He needed Jacob to come to terms with that. And no sooner did Jacob say, and it had to just be like, you know, just burn coming out of his mouth. Just, oh, my name is Jacob. The Lord said, no longer is your name Jacob. From now on, your name is Israel because you wrestled with God and you're an overcomer. He just needed that experience. And then God said, you've got a new name. And that's the experience in the time of trouble after the close of probation. God's not allowing, you got to ask, well, why does God even allow the situation after the close of probation? Because there's one last piece that he's going to take his people through. He wants them to have that deep experience and that new name that he gave to Jacob. And if there's anything I could say in all that we've looked at this afternoon, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus wants to save us, not destroy us. He's not trying to keep us out of the kingdom. It's not too crowded up there. He's not trying to thin it out and say, well, we got a few more houses overbooked than I intended. He's trying to get us in. And you've got to trust that he knows how to do it. Just put your trust in the Lord. Follow where he leads. Don't worry about your incapacities and your weaknesses. Jesus can do for you what he promised. It doesn't matter if you can explain how. Just trust that he can. And my brothers and sisters, we will one day soon rejoice with those new names in the kingdom of God. And when we look back on the trials of this life, we'll say heaven was cheap enough. This, this, this cost me nothing for an eternity with the Lord. But we don't have to wait until that eternity to right now have those burdens lifted. You know, I, I read that story of Joseph and Jacob. And I was talking to Cameron because, you know, I work with Cameron. He's 10 years younger than me. His kids are younger than my kids. My other kids are grown up out of the house. And, but his kids are old enough now. And I told him, You're, there's no such thing as a parent after any length of time who doesn't look and wish you did something different with your kids. Wish you were a better parent. Wish you were a better husband. Wish you were better. But I'm telling you that when we give those things to the Lord, today, the Lord will fill our hearts with his presence. And we can live a life, abundant life, a joyful life here and now, looking to the soon hereafter, where all these things will be a distant memory. In fact, in some ways, a forgotten memory because... Ellen White says that when Jesus finishes that work in his people, just before his coming and the blotting out of sin, try as they might to recall their sins to remembrance, even though they have a sense of their unworthiness, as we will, because everything, every part of salvation is all because of God, not because of us. Try as they might to bring their sins to remembrance. They can't do it because the sins have gone beforehand to judgment and been blotted out. What a glorious promise. And in that, in fact, and I'm not going to keep on preaching, but I just keep thinking of great stuff. I want to encourage you to read the chapter in Great Controversy, Facing Life's Record. It's on that time period of Christ's judgment. There's a statement in there where it says that when Jesus appears before the Father, pleading, this is what he's doing now. He asks for his people, not only pardon, full and complete, like, that's enough, isn't it? Not only that, but a share in his glory and a seat upon his throne, as if we'd never fallen. This is what Jesus is doing for us now. 
This is the work he started. This is the work he's going to finish. Will you trust him to do it? Let's pray together. Father in heaven. Father, our world is coming apart at the seams. But it's good to know that nothing is out of your control. And Lord, you are working your purposes out as truly as you did in the life of Joseph, of other patriarchs, even though things may look confused to us and out of control. Lord, I pray you'll help us to trust that what you're really doing is working to the uttermost to save humanity. And that includes us. Lord, may these last day events not create alarm and uncertainty. But give us a steadfast assurance and hope in the work of Jesus for us. And Lord, some of the kind of hope and confidence that we can share with others who don't have it. That we can point them to the same author and finisher of their faith. Lord, you know the various challenges that exist in this room. You know... Many of us have been trudging along that path that Jacob did. And maybe we're looking back at a lifetime of poor choices. But we're turning our eyes to you, Lord. And we're asking you to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And Lord, we're asking for that new name that you alone can give. Lord, we will not let you go until you bless us. Not because we deserve the blessing, but because you've promised it. And we believe in your promises. Father, thank you for hearing and answering this prayer because we pray it in the all-powerful name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.